1: Go to quince.com/slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.
2: The Telegraph. the Telegraph. Podcasts. Before we
3: begin today's episode, a quick announcement. We often receive requests from listeners to interview certain guests, and one name that has come up repeatedly is historian Professor Timothy Snyder of Yale University. Famous for his online lectures on Ukrainian history and his ongoing commentary on the war. Well, I'm delighted to say that Joe, David, and I have now recorded a full length interview with Professor Snyder, facilitated by the charity United24, who, with his support, are fundraising for a new air defence system via their project Safe Skies. That interview will be released as a special bonus episode this weekend featuring extended discussions on why he's optimistic about Ukraine's future, misunderstandings about Russia, and his meetings with President Zelensky. It's a genuinely fascinating interview, so be sure you don't miss it. Thank you. I'm Francis Durnley, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, following the latest military and political updates, I interview a former British frigate captain, what it's like tailing Russian submarines, and we look in closer detail on the work being done to raise awareness of Russian war crimes.
0: Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable
1: hardships to finally reward you with victory.
2: If we give President
0: Zelensky the tools, the Ukrainians will finish the job. Slava Ukraini!
4: Nobody's going to break us. We're strong where Ukraine
3: Every weekday, we sit down with leading journalists from The Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Friday, the 1st of December, one year and 280 days since the full-scale invasion began. Today, I sit down with retired Navy Commander Tom Sharp to discuss his experiences, as well as the evolving maritime picture in the conflict and what it implies for the future of naval warfare. Plus, David talks to the co-founders of the Ukrainian NGO PR Army, which works closely with journalists worldwide to connect them with Ukrainian eyewitnesses to war crimes. I began, however, by summarising the latest developments on the battlefield and beyond. The lead development is that Russian forces launched more than two dozen Iranian designed attack drones and two missiles on the south and east of the country, according to Ukrainian sources. As we've reported on the podcast for some months now, Russian forces are believed to have been stockpiling drones and missiles for systematic attacks on Ukraine's energy grid over the winter months. Whilst much work has been done in this area and there is room for optimism compared to, say, last year, Kiev has conceded that it needs more defensive weapons from the West to protect more vulnerable regions. As such, President Zelensky has said the war has entered a new phase as it enters winter, To quote him, look, we are not backing down. We are fighting with the second best army in the world. We wanted faster results from that perspective. Unfortunately, we did not achieve the desired results. And this is a fact. There is not enough power. But this does not mean that we should give up, that we have to surrender. Now, on these drone and missile strikes specifically, a Ukrainian Air Force spokesperson stated that Ukrainian forces destroyed the first wave of Shahid drones over Odessa Oblast, but that Russian forces had launched drones in several directions towards northern and western Ukraine. And that might explain why there was some success. The Russians are trying to find ways to outfox the air defences, it seems. But the Ukrainians are not just on the defensive. As reported by the ISW, the Ukrainian Security Service was reportedly involved in an explosion that caused disruptions on a section of the East Siberian Railway connecting Russia and China on the night of the 29th. Russian railways stated that a freight train caught fire in a tunnel section in far eastern Russia. Two railway cars carrying diesel fuel detonated, according to them, igniting six total railway cars. Ukrainian intelligence sources stated that four explosive devices detonated on the railway as part of an SBU operation and that the railway line, which is the only major line between Russia and China and is used to transport military supplies, is, to quote them, paralysed. Russian opposition outlet Astra stated that Russia uses that railway to transport weapons from North Korea. So this should be seen, I think, as an attempt by Kiev to disrupt the transportation of those stockpiles from Pyongyang that we've talked so much about ever since we were in the U.S., now, in other spheres beyond the military, Russia is working on the assumption that sanctions against it by the United States and its allies will last for many years. But the U.S. influence on the world economy is waning. That's according to Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov. Peskov made these comments in response to an interview uh, in the U.S. by Assistant Secretary of State for Energy Resources Jeffrey Pyatt, uh that Washington was aiming to halve Russia's oil and gas revenues by the end of the decade. Now, on this theme, The Economist has published a very interesting piece examining the state of the Russian economy, that perennial question, of course, which we've been discussing on the podcast ever since the full-scale invasion. It's called How Putin is Reshaping Russia to Keep His War Machine Running. And it goes into much more detail on the fact that the richer and more educated people are, seemingly the more supportive they are of the war. As I remember, we speculated was likely to occur. There is now a bigger class of bureaucrats and businessmen who've attained their status through patronage and who will uphold the regime in order to protect it. And this piece quotes a survey of some Russian entrepreneurs. Now, interestingly, these individuals, it says, having worked through several financial crises and battled with predatory bureaucrats, put a premium on preparing for the worst. To quote the article, The disappearance of Western imports and the closure of Western firms has opened new niches for Russian companies. At the same time, the capital controls imposed by the central bank have left them with few options but to invest in Russia. The government has offered loans and even ordered bureaucrats not to harass said entrepreneurs. Yet, with the Russian government's budget ballooning, something we've discussed many times, defence spending alone is set to almost double next year to 6% of GDP, the highest it's been since the collapse of the Soviet Union. Spending on health and education is falling in real terms. As the Kremlin's finance minister recently declared, the main emphasis is on ensuring victory. The army, defensive capability, armed forces, fighters, everything needed for the front, he said. Everything needed for victory is in the budget. Now, to quote The Economist, such lavish outlays will not be sustainable indefinitely. The central bank is struggling to restrain rising inflation, which reached 12% year on year in the third quarter of this year. It's raised interest rates to 15%. The authorities, meanwhile, are forcing exporters to convert their revenues to rubles to stave off further devaluation, which would exacerbate inflation. Some 43% of Russians expect their economic situation to worsen in the next year or two, while only 21% expect it to improve. But as the piece examines for the moment there is seemingly a bonanza especially in certain parts of the economy and certain segments of russian society construction consumption and services are growing in regions close to the war zone or with lots of munitions factories in the far east there is heavy investment in infrastructure to expand trade with asia since ties to europe have withered moscow and st petersburg interestingly do not benefit much from this new order but depressed industrial regions Putin's heartland, in essence, are living better than they have for years. Russia's vast and poor hinterland has also benefited from the cash the authorities are dangling in order to secure more recruits to the army. Yet there is, of course, a contradiction at the heart of this. Putin wants both to mobilise ever more manpower and money for the fight, and yet at the same time to secure Russians' acquiescence by disrupting their lives as little as possible. As economic dislocation increases and resources get more scarce, those conflicts will only grow. Recent Russian opposition polls indicate that the numbers of Russians who fully support the war in Ukraine has almost halved, as I say, since February 2023, and that more Russians support a withdrawal of Russian forces from Ukraine than do not. Relatives of mobilised personnel, too, are continuing to make widespread complaints and appeals for aid for mobilised personnel despite reported Russian efforts to censor those complaints. The Kremlin is working overtime to ensure that Putin's electoral support does not rest on those battlefield successes. Instead, they've made this conflict against the West so that any success, however small, can be seen as a triumph when measured by that margin. Now, One final word on economic matters. I also wanted to recommend a piece by the historian Adam Tooze, a name whose works will be familiar to regular listeners. I've cited them several times on the podcast, not least his book, Wages of Destruction. He's written a piece on his Substack titled The Precarious Stabilisation of Ukraine's War Economy. Now, I haven't the time to summarise it all here. I'm very keen to get to our guest. But it's a very detailed look at the Ukrainian wartime economy and how it is being kept Afloat. He concludes the piece by saying the precarious stabilisation depends on two things. Ukraine manages to continue the war as a grinding attritional struggle and the flow of external finance continues. As Shapita said, it is in budgets like this you can hear the thunder of world history. The key questions going forward are. Will this patchwork be enough to sustain Ukraine in its vastly unequal struggle with Russia? And secondly, where in this balance does the United States figure? Will the Biden administration secure congressional approval for more aid for Ukraine? And what are the prospects beyond 2024? So we'll make sure the links to both the piece in The Economist and that piece on Substack are in the description for the episode. Some of those core questions that we've touched on the podcast many times now about the state of the Russian economy, the long term economic prospects for Ukraine, if some of that Western support with us are explored in much more detail in those pieces. And I know for some listeners, they're probably a little bit dry compared to some of the military aspects of this. But of course, they are absolutely vital for the military picture. But let's turn to that now. I'm delighted to be joined on the podcast by retired Navy Commander Tom Sharp, who spent 20 years at sea, sailed in all the oceans and captained four ships, including HMS and Albans, an anti-submarine frigate in the Gulf and in the High North hunting Russian submarines. Now, our main intention today, Tom, is to do a deeper dive, if you'll excuse the pun, into the current naval picture in this war. But before we get into that, I have to ask, can you just lay out for us what exactly is involved in hunting Russian subs? It sounds rather daring do and and dashing, but what are you looking out for? What does it involve on a day to day basis?
4: Hi, Francis, and uh, thanks for having me on. Um, yes, it's actually not that dashing and it's not that daring do. It, it's, it's a bit like postal chess. Uh, it's played out over weeks, uh, if not months. So we used to liken ourselves to the to the RAF uh, fast response aircraft, that kind of sonic boom over the north of Scotland to intercept bombers. Only they're back by T-type. Uh, we're normally back sometime the next the following month. So I was in command of HMS St Albans, which at the time was our newest uh, a towed array frigate which is to say an anti-submarine specialist ship with a sonar uh, for specifically configured for detecting submarines in deep water and we were on call for an entire for, for my entire time normally sitting in Portsmouth but if it started to uh, get a bit more interesting uh, and uh, and movements were detected out of area deployers as we used to call them were detected then we would sometimes pre-position up in Faslane on the west coast of Scotland there just to lessen the distance. And then really, you're plugging into the entire network of anti-submarine capabilities. This is never a one-on-one. This is never ship versus submarine. It's never submarine versus submarine. There's a spider's web of capabilities and equipment that all integrate. Now, that's fascinating in its own right, because you've got air forces, you've got intelligence agencies, you've got satellite coverage, you've got all sorts of bits and pieces uh, operating across many countries uh, at a very highly classified level. So integrating into that network is, is quite challenging in its, in its own right. But if it works, it works well. And then you know these things are coming, and then you're dispatched in, in, from whichever port you've ended up in uh, to go and intercept them with uh, really sort of two, two things in mind. Um, well, the, the first thing is to deter. As, as always with, with navies, we spend a vast amount of our time doing just that. In fact, it's, it's the core role to stop things escalating further. So there's a deterrence part. And then there's the bit where you actually want to keep them away from from certain things. Uh, The two most obvious of which are our own submarines. We need to keep the Russian submarines away from those. The reasons I can go into if you'd like. Um, And the other one is to keep them away from our critical uh, underwater infrastructure, the pipes, the cables, the telecommunications, the, the the energy supply cables. Uh, All of which are vulnerable and and have been shown to be more vulnerable in the last few months. So our job was really to get up there, get up north, sometimes a long way north, uh, certainly through the Greenland, Iceland, UK gap uh, and and form part of this web of of detecting and deterring these uh, out of area deployers from Russia.
3: Well, that's fascinating. And we'll get into more of your personal experiences later on. Absolutely. But let's zoom out then. And it's been a while, I think, on the podcast that we've really reflected on the overall naval picture in the context of Ukraine and Russia. So if I were to ask you, Tom, and you write very regularly for The Telegraph, I should say, and listeners should definitely check out your fascinating and detailed pieces on some of these questions. In your view, what are the relative strengths and weaknesses of the Russian and Ukrainian naval position at the moment? What is the status quo almost two years into the conflict?
4: You do have to step back slightly. Otherwise, I'll end up comparing hull numbers to hull numbers. And, and, that's, and that's never the way to start these conversations. But it's amazing how often they end up that way. And I think if you look, if you look to some of the points you made about, about economies, freedom of, of navigation movement of grain and other products out of the black Sea and you start there as, as as your sort of point of reference then it gives a it gives a clear indication of, of what of what the status quo is right now irrespective of, of which ships have been hit and destroyed and what tactics have been used and, and I'll come on to that but but right now the status quo and, and I say this almost sort of You know, hesitantly, perhaps because as a mariner, (laughs) I'm naturally uh, superstitious. But but right now it's quite positive in terms of exporting products from Ukraine through the Black Sea, through that humanitarian corridor um, and and out into the wide blue yonder uh, and and to places that really, really need that stuff. Then it's relatively positive. You know, we've had 100 ships have now gone through that humanitarian corridor since it was formed. Um, overall exports are, are they're, they're down. They're still down. You know, let's not let's not sort of make it too positive, but they're down by about thirty percent on what they would normally be at this time of the year. So, so all this toing and froing and and, and striking of Russian ships and counter striking by Russian ships on on grain silos uh, is, is is ongoing and and you know very very kinetic and uh, and one to track. But the end result of this, if, if Russia's aim is to disrupt the flow of produce out of the Black Sea, then they're failing. If Ukraine's aim is to ensure the freedom of navigation in the Black Sea, then they're succeeding, albeit with large, large caveats applied. And there's many, there's many more twists and turns to this uh, to come, I'm sure. That's very
3: interesting. And obviously we've seen the news this week and actually really for for several uh, weeks now about the very precarious situation of the Black Sea Fleet, Russia's Black Sea Fleet. I just wonder if you can reflect on that as somebody who actually... In a sense, has had to dock frigates, boats for all of your career. How disastrous is it if you lose your main base? You know, if that becomes a potential target, slash, it becomes no longer usable. Whether to for weather or just infrastructural limitations, just in a sort of practical sense, give us a, a sense of how serious that
4: actually is. Yes, I wrote about Sevastopol and and, and the battering it was taking um, in in the autumn. I mean, it's it's they've lost um, or, or had damaged 17 ships. You know, that is a significant percentage of the Black Sea fleet, some of which are at the bottom of the Black Sea, some of which are in, in a bad state of repair and, and unlikely to, to be repaired in the near future. So so it's a huge percentage loss rate. And, and the Ukrainians have been extraordinarily innovative and successful in their abilities to to attack. All pretty much all elements actually of the, of the of the Black Sea fleet. I mean, it started with the Moskva. In fact, the whole thing started with Moskva off Snake Island, and that sort of tremendous resilience shown by the Ukrainians, um, and then and then that was sent totemically to the bottom. Um, and, and since then, the attacks have continued in many different forms and have been successful in, in in a great in a great deal of them. The Sevastopol one was really really totemic because. Um, It was such a it was such a coordinated effort from special forces taking out their their long range air surveillance radars to um, the storm shadow that we that we sold the Ukrainians then striking the dry docks there. So you're not just hitting the ships, you're hitting the ability to then repair those ships. Uh, And uh, one of the submarines that was struck was was one of their more newest and more potent ones with caliber cruise missiles. And I'm sure I'm sure we'll come back to that. So it took out a couple of their ships and it took out the dry docks. And that's fundamental, the ability to continue this fight. They have to be able to build and repair these things. So uh, but but it was also bigger than that. Right. They then they they then drove the the seniors back into a reserve headquarters. uh, And a day later that got struck. Killing 33 people. And I wrote rather flippantly, I suppose, you know, no one's volunteering for duties at Sevastopol Naval Base just now. Uh, And that's true. And it drove them back and it drove them back and it forced them not quite to abandon it, but not far off it. I think they left about three or four ships alongside. Again, (laughs) no one's probably queuing up to be duty on those. Uh, And the ships had to withdraw and they had to draw to somewhere further away. And now even that's under threat. So now they're looking at building an entirely new base in Georgia. So the morale of, of the fighting force of the Black Sea—not only are they taking these 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 damages, they're being drawn out of somewhere as as important and symbolic as Sevastopol, and then their morale must be pretty pretty fraught. I would have thought. I mean, it's not always the highest anyway in the Russian in the Russian Navy, due to various reasons. They don't you know of pay and uh, etc. Pay and conditions are, are poor. If you're getting whacked every time you go to work. Uh, And now you're having to retreat. You know, that's that's huge. And I think that came at a very important time overall in this in this conflict.
3: That's really interesting. Now, you spoke spoke, uh, when we started about the way in which when you were operating frigates, it's very much coordinated with other military forces. And of course, I imagine the RAF were very much part of that. One key weapon in naval warfare that we've seen is, of course, maritime patrol aircraft. And I seem to remember British military intelligence reported that Russia's Black Sea Fleet had been reduced to using very old flying boats in this role, which suggests that the surveillance planes are rather hard pressed or indeed unable to assist that fleet. Do you think that's the case? And if so, just quite how serious is that if you lose, in a sense, those eyes in the sky?
4: Yes, if you lose your intelligence feed, you you can't win. I mean, it's it's really that simple. If you're you're sort of dialing the clock back 200 years where everything was line of sight, if you do that now, you will not succeed. So if you can suppress the enemy's ability to to gather intelligence, um, then then you will then you will win. Now, there are plenty of ways of gathering it. So the Black Sea is not that big, remember, it's 370 miles across. So through satellite methods and et cetera, there are definitely other ways of, of, of hoovering in a, what we would call a recognised air picture. But the accuracy of that picture is absolutely vital. If you, want to, if you want to strategically move your scarce resources around to best effect in order to strike or defend or deter, then that recognized air picture has to be very, very accurate, particularly if you want to strike. Uh, if it's not accurate, even if it's 10 minutes out of date, then your targeting data is wrong and those weapons will, will miss. So you're using resources, and I'll keep coming back to resources. You're, you're, you're using resources to develop that recognized air picture. If you, the day you're putting up a flying boat with, you know, with binoculars uh, is, a, is a bad day because it means you, you're strapped for resources. You're now at the bottom of the barrel making stuff up in an attempt to at least try and gather some some information so yeah that's that's really important our own maritime patrol situation is is strong you know our MPAs have been there uh, up and down the the coast there for a while the new the new capability we have is outstanding Uh, the the RAF's patrol aircraft is very very good Uh, when I described my my story earlier about hunting Russian submarines in the in the north that was during the gap where we had incredibly foolishly decommissioned the nimrod and we had a capability gap and this fundamental part of uk defense we just gapped for about i don't know i think it was about 10 years so every time i sailed i had to ring someone in another nato country and sort of start negotiating about whether we could use their aircraft I mean, it's just just appalling anyway we rectified that now as ever we, we don't have enough of them but when they're up uh, and operating there are incredibly capable and, and a fundamental part of this picture building an intelligence gathering without which you cannot win.
3: Well, on that theme, Tom, something we've reflected on the podcast in the past is this question of, of the future of NATO defence. And indeed, of course, there are different forces in each country and some countries have particular Specialties, and some have larger armies. Some have larger maritime capabilities, and of course, Britain famously has one of the best, certainly fleets in Europe, if not the best, indeed, in in the world. So, what do you think the prime? sort of arrangement should be in the long term as we think about the threats posed by Russia and other hostile actors? Is it for, in essence, us to sign some kind of cooperative agreement where you say, okay, Poland builds more, a larger land army, Uh, you know, Britain builds a larger maritime force. You know, I'm not talking about a NATO army here or an EU army, but I'm talking about the forge. What is the optimal solution for this problem of not every country wanting to invest in having a full navy a full air force and a full armed forces because clearly for whatever reasons whether it be financial political reality that is not likely we have not seen that mass mobilization so i'm very interested in your perspective on this fundamental question is what is politically possible that would be optimal in your view about the
4: future defense apparatus of europe This comes to the almost the key pillars of the integrated review, which which was the strategy document that was set to answer this. Uh, And it it didn't quite, because what we're really talking here is about is the UK a land power or is it a sea power? And therefore, you know, what do we need? Therefore, what should we focus on both uh, uh, unilaterally, but also as part of the wider NATO alliance, as you say? And And you're right, we can't do it all much as it's fun to play fantasy fleets and, and much as people sort of gnash their teeth that we don't have a U.S. nuclear carrier strike capability, that is unrealistic. We're, we're, we're hovering around the 2% of GDP we have done since forever. Uh, and, and it's only ever really been in, in decline since the 50s. America's at 3.6% of a much larger GDP. So, so we need to just yeah, slide... That sort of aspiration to one side, and as you say, we have to be very realistic about how we contribute to to the wider alliance. And to do that, yes, we need to be very clear in our own mind what our priorities are. Is it the North Atlantic and uh, and and the maritime um, front there? Is it NATO in Europe, or is it global uh, power projection, including events in the in the Indo Pacific? And that is a debate that, that that rumbles on. I mean, I would inevitably defer to the maritime in the in the North Atlantic and around Europe as as what I think as a country should be our priority. It's a it's a it's a cliche, but cliches are there for a reason. Ninety five percent of our trade arrives by sea. Those under uh, uh, undersea cables that connect us to America, trillions of dollars a day pass through those. If they get cut, if they get destroyed. You know, we're talking about an absolute sort of it's it's nuclear without using nuclear weapons. So my view, and I would say this as a mariner, I'll concede that, is that we as a country should really be focusing our build on what's required to defend the the waters around the UK and up into the North Atlantic and around and contribute to NATO as best as we can to form part of that framework. And if that means if that means our, our great, you know, the Great British Army takes a wee bit of a hit. Then, then that I think I, you know, well, that's what's happening. Let's be honest. That's what's happening now anyway. I, fundamentally, all of this comes down to the fact we're not resourcing defense properly across the board. Let's start there. But if but if that remains the base assumption, then we have to choose. Uh, and I think personally we should focus uh here. But it's not a it's not a zero-sum game. You can do both. And I think you can still deploy to the Indo-Pacific, you can still deploy to the gulf and, and in fact of course right now we we have and we have to because of what's going on there these things are all connected you can't just turn inwards and say well that you know we've got to keep the i mean it's extraordinary how many comments to my articles are met by why isn't the navy in the channel you know which is to totally kind sort of misunderstand what the royal navy is is really for but it but it does indicate a large the large percentage of people who really look at the 12 mile strip around the uk and say that's what the navy should be doing so the answer is somewhere between that, between the 12 miles around the UK and, and the Indo-Pacific. Uh, and I think right now, you know, we've got a good balance of, of forces to do that. And our build programme, the Royal Navy's build programme, I think suits that aspiration quite well. But as ever, there's just not quite enough of them.
3: When we think about Western vulnerabilities, you said there just how exposed cables are for attack. I mean, This is very much a layman's question, Tom, for which I apologise, but I imagine many listeners will be thinking along the same lines, which is how on earth can you protect these cables when they are so long? I mean, presumably they can be fairly easily targeted. You can't surely protect them all of the time. If they want, you know, if a power, a hostile power wants to destroy them, they can do so. So... What, what you know, how are we basically critically exposed here? And if, you know, God forbid, we were to enter some sort of World War three scenario, just how doomed are we, as it were? Or perhaps I'm totally wrong here. And I hope I am, of course.
4: No, you're not totally wrong, but it's a it's cat and mouse. And I think it helps if you put yourself in the mind of the of the enemy. So they they want to disrupt our telecommunications and our power distribution network. They they will have on the table in front of them, metaphorical or otherwise, what we have to deter and, and defeat that should they do it. And they have to work very carefully around that. So they will know that their Russian their nuclear submarines operating in the North Atlantic have been unable to do so with impunity since. Well, since forever, frankly, they're getting better. Uh, and I would say just as a sort of cautionary side note, when you look at the sinking of the Moskva, it's very easy to sort of almost poke fun at the Russian Navy. And, and elements of it are poorly run and morale is low, as I described earlier. But there are bits that are run really well. And their, their secretive um, nuclear submarine program is, is very well funded and, and very well run. Those, those submarines are well run. They're formidable adversaries. So, so it's cat and mouse, um, but they know that they can't operate w- with impunity. Now, if you start looking at sort of gas pipelines, let's say the Nord Stream or the Baltic Connector, you know, these are things that they can target. So you're right. You can't do all of it all of the time, um, but you can't. You're still going to lock your house right. You can't stop burglars all of the time, but you you still lock your house to make it much, much harder for them. And that's, I think that's really what we're getting at here. We're just deterring and detecting as much as we can. And, you know, even even additions like uh, the Proteus, the RFA Proteus that we took up from trade, only uh only a few months ago and converted very quickly into a specialist undersea um, surveillance platform you know that's huge that that shows really real forward thinking that is us being proactive in this space in a way that um you know historically we haven't been we've generally been a bit more reactive so that's that's very encouraging and i think if we can put that vessel to good use we've just sailed um, six ships and one uh, one aircraft to to specifically tackle this task on a, on a NATO wide basis. Uh, two frigates, a couple of patrol vessels, and a couple of mine uh, mine hunters. So we are looking at this. It's being taken very very seriously, and we're and we're being uh, we're being very proactive about it. In in, in my view, and that's that's encouraging.
3: Well, that's really, really interesting. Now, let's just come back then to sort of specifically the Ukraine context. What do you think of the likely outcomes if we're sort of thinking now, unfortunately, this war is going to last longer than many of us hoped, thinking into 2023 and possibly beyond? As things stand as, as the sort of current trajectory, the development of Russian capability, Ukrainian capability and some of the things you've described – where do you think we're going to end up, Tom? And are you optimistic or are you more pessimistic? Because it does feel like quite a pessimistic moment in the war, generally.
4: I'm optimistic, providing we keep supplying them with what they need to carry on doing what they're doing. I mean, they are being extraordinarily innovative. As I said, as I said before, the, the crowdfunding thing they put up to to, uh, to source new drones. I mean, that's just that's just brilliant. Right. Hundred new uh, hundred new maritime drones funded online. Um, so they're being very innovative, but there are, some, there are some really pointy capabilities that they will continue to need to be supplied with, as well as the intelligence uh, infrastructure over the top of all of that. So the Storm Shadows, the SCALP missiles, which is the French equivalent, um, et cetera, et cetera, AT-CAMS at from, the, from the US. The, we, we've got to keep doing that because we've got to keep pushing the, the Russians back eastwards. If we don't do that, then the protection of the humanitarian corridor and the ability to maintain some sort of freedom of navigation, albeit slightly distorted and bent up against the coast, against uh, Romania and Bulgaria. So it's in place, but it's, it's a bit wonky. But but if we don't continue to suppress uh, both uh, Russian maritime activities and their morale, then that will become harder and harder to to endure, and then eventually there'll be a mishap—a caliber a caliber missile or a mine. And we had a there was a mine strike actually only last month hit a Liberian flag tanker. That could have just been a free floating one; it might not have been targeted. But mines are a stinker because you don't know where they've come from, and you can you can almost hide them as anything. You know, you can, there's ult- ultimate deniability when it comes to mines. So so keeping the Bosphorus clear of mines keeping the humanitarian corridor in place if that all happens as it is now then that's positive you know like i say i think uh, and i do still sort of reluctant to say it but we are in a positive position where where those that flow of trade is is recovering but if we don't if we don't supply ukraine with the weapons it needs to maintain that standoff distance then we will lose that foothold and it will become very quickly less positive and less easy to control we're looking
3: long long term then Tom beyond this conflict what do you think of course there's been many reflections about what drone warfare means for tank warfare for instance and indeed generally open source information and what that means for battle ops etc but what do you think this war is pointing us towards in terms of the future of naval warfare?
4: It's perhaps a little bit too early to tell. I mean, the, the the emergence of drones. Some would argue it's not the emergence of drones in, in the maritime at all. Um, and in fact, if you look at the the Iranian fleet, the IRGCN in particular, they they've got thousands of fast attack craft, some of which are autonomous and, and have been for a long while. So, so uh, and yes, un, un you know uncrewed vessels go back to uh, centuries, um, the fire ships, etc. So. It's not new, but it is being but it is being developed in a new way. I suppose what I'm saying is, is drones. Um, look, if you're not in that gang, you're, you're not you're not going to be able to play for much longer. But both ways, you have to be able to do it offensively, and you have to be able to defend against them. Uh, watching the Eisenhower go through the Straits of Hormuz the other day, being tracked by Iranian um, drones, albeit at some distance, is indicative of that. And and the next time a merchant vessel goes past and, and launches. You know, a hundred of these things at you. What have you got? What have you got to to defeat that? And I think everyone's lagging slightly on that front. Uh, there's a lot of work going on. There's a lot of de- developmental work going on in the UK with with uh, Navy X and uh, and the like. You know, really looking at this problem. Uh, my sense at the moment in the in the sort of game of naval cat and mouse is that the offenders are slightly ahead of the de- defenders on this one, uh, and uh, we need to make sure that we catch that, we close that gap as quickly as possible. And I think the Ukraine war has shown that the the maritime component of the Ukraine war, but the rest of it actually, um, you know, it's, it's, it's tempting to sort of overthink these things and and sort of imagine that this is going to change the shape that that what's happening in the Black Sea is going to change the shape of naval warfare. I, I don't think it is. We're still talking about choke points about the importance of defending them about the importance of intelligence gathering and providing a picture about whose weapons got the best range, who's got the best track on, who, you know, the fundamentals haven't really changed. And if you, if you take that out into deeper water uh, around the top, let's say, in the, in, in the high north or in the Greenland Ice and UK Gap, you know, nothing, is really, nothing has really changed. It, it, it is tempting to brain yourself out of needing warships and go, well, it's just, you know, or aircraft carriers is the classic one. You know, they're now completely redundant. Um, well, they're not. I mean, look at look at what the US Navy has been doing in the last few months in the eastern Mediterranean and and how effective that has been. Again, said with due caution, aircraft carriers are not redundant. They're vulnerable. Warships are vulnerable and they always have been. That's the point. You know, that is the And you know that when you're in it, you know, you're vulnerable. But that doesn't mean you're redundant. So there will be there will be lessons to be learned from it. I mean, you know, from the Russian perspective, some of their some of their failures have been extraordinary yeah, extraordinary I mean the Moskva the way she allowed herself to get hit in that way well, I mean I hope that we don't need to learn any of those lessons because they're already in place um so yeah there'll be there'll be sort of micro lessons and there'll be macro lessons I think right now the, the interesting one is the use of of, of autonom- autonomy in the maritime uh, and where we are on the our ability to do that and also defend against it
3: we're reaching the end of our time tom so just a couple more questions from me i know listeners will not forgive me if i don't ask you for a little bit more description, some color of of your time as a frigate commander because it's just so uh, exceptional to have you on and and to talk about someone who's actually done this stuff in in real life tell me a bit about your time on the endurance and how you got your obe because this is quite an extraordinary story isn't it from your career
4: it is. It's a sort of it's a it's a strange tale because it, it ends well, but it's not full of glamour along, along the way. In fact, it was very nearly a catastrophe. Uh, we, we were the Antarctic patrol vessels sent there by the by the FCDO ostensibly to patrol the Southern Ocean and our part of the of Antarctica, or our slice of the of the of the cheese wedge, if you like. So we would sit off the peninsula and we, we would inspect bases uh, we would work for the British Antarctic Survey doing research and science, and we're also part we 'd work for the u k hydrographic office because a lot of the waters down there are, remain uncharted um, and the the cruise industry is is booming so we were we would survey the seabed and provide that information and also we had a as a sort of perk one of our helicopters had a BBC camera crew, and so a lot of frozen planet was was filmed from us which was which was pretty cool seeing that footage that night when they 'd just taken it was was fantastic. But we'd, we had spent a work period in South Georgia, um, doing some work and research survey and scientific research there. And we we're off to Chile uh, uh, and uh, for Christmas and New Year, we were deployed for 18 months, you know, so sort of file that away next time, next time you say goodbye to your, to your families. We were sent, we were sent away for 18 months. Um, and we were off to um, Valparaiso in Northern Chile for Christmas and New Year. We'd gone around um, Cape Horn that morning, And we were in the Magellan Straits when we did some work on on an inlet valve, a four foot diameter inlet valve. And unfortunately, the work wasn't done particularly well. In fact, it was done badly and the valve failed and it failed in such a manner that it couldn't then be shut. And that was the only thing keeping the water out of the people out of the people tank. Um, And it came in at twelve hundred tons. in half an hour so our engine space was was a 1200 ton compartment we filled it to the deckhead in half an hour so that's half an olympic swimming pool came in in half an hour and um the noise of the water coming in was so loud that the people in there trying to stop it of course they, they couldn't but they were trying to bravely uh the noise drowned out the main engines that were still running it was so violent um i put out a mayday on channel 16 the emergency channel and no one answered because. Because of where we were, we were in the middle of, of nowhere. So it was a sort of look around the bridge and go, right, you know, we fight this with what we've got. And we spent the next 36 hours doing just that, not not sleeping, trying to control the, the ingress of water, trying to stop it. So obviously the engine room was lost. We lost power and went beam onto the sea. So we were rolling around uh, all over the place. Um, and we had to manage that. We had to manage this, the, the, the internal water site integrity of the ship, which was really poor. I mean, we took on in total about two and a half thousand tons of water. Uh, we were sitting very low. We were listing and rolling. Um, we were in, we were in a poor state, but, but we managed through, through by hook or by crook to control this. We got to anchor eventually. And then the, the cavalry came 24 hours later to whisk us into, into Punta Arenas where we then sorted ourselves out. So yes, it was, um, you know it, it was sort of the best and the worst of being at sea uh, um, you're very vulnerable all the time you don't need to be in harm's way you don't need to be up threat or, or, or in contact with the enemy in the Navy every time you sail uh, every time you let go of your lines you're you're in harm's way because we, we can't we can't breathe underwater and so uh, it's worth remembering that when you when you start taking global shipping for granted it's not a friendly environment and we were unfortunate that <laughs> we let that unfriendly environment into the ship uh but, for, but from that moment onwards the bravery and commitment of the, of the ship's company over the next 36 to 48 hours was was exemplary and and they uh between us we saved the ship from sinking
3: extraordinary well what a story thank you tom for that um anything else from you before we wrap up and do our final thoughts i know we've covered a lot of different areas but i'm aware there may have been something that's on your mind that's not on ours
4: I've mentioned it a couple of times. I, I let it slip because I've written it in big letters. Um, but it's it's everything at the moment in the maritime domain. And in fact, in the defense domain, comes down to, to resources. We're all moving ships around the ocean. The U.S. Navy has done it in an extraordinary fashion in the last few months. Um, we are now sending one of our destroyers out to to help relieve that burden into the Red Sea. And that that is going to be a tough gig for HMS Diamond down there. And I wish her all, all the best. Uh, like i say we 've sent six ships off to do this uh, critical underwater infrastructure protection gig um, this all This all has a bill all of this has a bill every time every time we talk about thickening presence or providing commitment or contributing to a task force yeah, that has a resource bill, and that bill is going up it 's been going up steadily for for years, and now that rate of acceleration is is increasing. And the thing that bothers me, Francis, is I'm not hearing anything from the Treasury about that bill being met. Um, it's being treated, as it has been for so long now, as a, as a free gift. Uh, and and it shouldn't be because the end result of that is the the, the, the men and women of the Royal Navy bearing that bill. You know, they, they take that burden on and it's not fair on them because it puts them at unne- unnecessary risk. And if you continue to stretch it and you continue to stretch it, then eventually something breaks. And then because the irony is at that point, the bill becomes much higher and unavoidable. So it bothers me right now that no one on either side of the of the political spectrum is is really talking seriously about meeting. There's sticking plasters uh, being handed out and there's promises of an increase to 2.5%. But none of it, none of it is real. And it needs to be because because the bill is real and increasing.
3: Well, thank you, Tom. And of course, that's a relevant question in the military spheres across Europe at the moment with inflation rising, etc. This conversation about what is actual increase in spending in real terms as opposed to merely in on the balance sheet, as it were. But Tom, thank you so much. We'll have to have you back. It was just really, really interesting. And I know many listeners will be writing in for their reflections. And I know we have many naval folk who listen to us. So thank you on their behalf, too. Final thoughts then. I'll just start off. I mentioned this yesterday, so forgive me if, uh, if you heard this in yesterday's episode, but I did just want to flag again that you uh, have the opportunity to potentially talk to Dom or myself uh, on this Sunday for charity. It's the Telegraph's Christmas charity appeal phone-in day. Uh, so it'll be Sunday, the 3rd of December, 10 a.m. to 6 a.m. London time. That's 5 a.m. 1 a, uh, to 1 p.m. Uh, EST. The number I've now had confirmed is, so in the UK, 0800 117 118. And if you're an international caller, it is the same number, but you just put the UK country code beforehand. But of course, standard rates will apply. And I'll just say that number again. It's 0800 117 118. I'm afraid you're not able to request who you speak to. Uh, You might speak to the editor, you might speak to one of our columnists, um, or one of my colleagues on the comment desk, um, or you might get me and Dom. It's sort of luck of the draw, really. But uh, it would be lovely to speak to some of you if you're able to make the time to give us a call. And we're supporting four charities this year, uh, Race Against Dementia, the RAF Benevolent Fund, Marie Curie Hospice, and Go Beyond, which supports young people. And that's for the whole paper. It's not just for Ukraine, the latest, obviously. So thank you for that. And just one other thing I wanted to flag, our most requested guest is undoubtedly, I've lost count the number of emails that have come into the inbox, uh, historian Timothy Snyder. And I'm delighted to say that we have interviewed him now. It was Joe, David and myself. And that interview will be going out In Sunday or maybe Saturday, maybe Sunday, we will see uh, Paul Giles has got to edit it, I think. So it will depend on when he's able to do that. Um, But it will be going out over the weekend. And uh, it's a really, really interesting interview. I hope it lives up to the expectations that people have laid on it, because uh, I know he's extremely requested. And we get into lots of different areas about the culture in Ukraine, the historical moment, and also some subjects we've never covered before. So I highly recommend checking that out. But it just goes for me now to ask Tom, you've got the you're, you're our guest today. You've got the very final thoughts. What would you like to add?
4: I just want to remind everybody, if I can do that without sounding like a maritime bore, uh, that this stuff isn't out of sight, out of mind. Uh, it's it's every single land campaign uh, has a maritime element to it. Some, sometimes it's strategically and, and, and totemically important. Um, but the the business of supplying what the UK needs every day of the year is provided by uh, the merchant Navy uh, and sailors out there battling the sort of conditions I described in my endurance story and if I had if I could just mention one thing it's just please please don't take that for granted keep that in the back of your mind it happens every day of every year
3: Earlier this week, David sat down with Anastasia Maloshevska and Julia Petrik, co-founders of the Ukrainian NGO PR Army, which works closely with journalists worldwide to share the truth about the war and connect them with Ukrainian speakers, experts and eyewitnesses. They discuss the work being done to raise awareness of war crimes perpetrated by Russian forces. This is their conversation.
0: Anastasia and Julia, thank you so much for your time today. Can we start before we get into the subjects here, would you just introduce yourselves to to our listeners?
2: Yeah, Uh, thanks for having us. My name is Julia Patrick, I came here from Ukraine and I'm still based in Ukraine. Before the full-scale invasion, I was the head of PR in a software development company. But on that morning, when Russia invaded Ukraine from multiple directions, my life has changed enormously. And now I can introduce myself as one of the co-founders of the Ukrainian PR army, who is resisting Russia in the information battlefield.
1: Uh, My name is Anastasia Maroshevska. I'm also a co-founder at the Ukrainian PR Army and also I'm the founder and strategic leader of the project Where Are People? that is focused on the deportation of Ukrainians. Also, I am editor-in-chief at Ukrainian non-profit media Ukrainer International, which uh, focuses on spreading Ukrainian context in over 10 languages. Yes, so also... I used to work in communications, uh, both in business and in uh, partial in government. And since the beginning of the full-scale war, I'm 100% committed to the information resilience and resistance.
0: Well, let's start by talking about your work on the deportation of Ukrainian children to the occupied territories and to Russia. I read through the notes you very kindly sent over before you came in, and there were three words that stood out, indoctrination, militarization, And re-education. So Anastasia, could you talk us through those three terms? And it'd be, I think, very important to understand what they mean on the ground. What does this mean that the children taken are actually going through?
1: Yeah, so within the Where Are People project, we talk about not only deportation of children, but also of adults. However, with children, there is this specifics that you can brainwash children, you can change their identities. And this is what Russians are doing. They call, like, it's generally called re-education. Uh, which means that children are taken to specific camps where they're exposed to Russian propaganda, where, where they're taught to be Russians, basically. Uh, Whether, as for example, First Lady also mentioned that Ukrainian children are told that there is no Ukraine and Ukrainians do not exist. There are only Russians. And it's a very confusing idea in the heads of uh, young people. People, but also there is militarization part, which we've been doing extensive research into the Youth Army, one of the organizations that is sponsored by Kremlin, and they basically preparing children for war, and many of the Ukrainian deported Ukrainian children are forced to join the Youth Army, and of course there is some horrible indoctrination programs that are. Involved there, yeah, and you can see these, and they're not hiding it. You can see many, many information, open source videos where they film uh, all these trainings, where they film children and children sharing kind of their thoughts on whatever's happening. And besides the children that have been deported since the beginning of full scale war, there are many of them from the occupied Crimea and from. um, Donetsk region as well. And many of those children were uh, very little where, when Russia invaded the east of Ukraine uh, and, and Crimea. So some of them are not really sure, I guess, who they are. And this is a very dangerous precedent because uh, even if at some point we'll be able to find and locate those children, which is now not the case, we don't know where all of the deported children are, but when we do locate them, we will need to have a great reintegration system for them because they are completely brainwashed. And some of them who are a little bit older, they can resist it. The younger ones are easily, can be easily subjected, yeah, manipulated, subjected to Russian propaganda.
0: I think it's astonishing what you say about how a lot of this is open source, that it's not something being hidden, it's something actually kind of being boasted
1: about. They, at, at first, when the deportations start, started being public, the Russians were very happy about it. They were saying, like, they were using this as to show their mercy, to show that they're saving people, saving children from, from the war that they started. Yeah, but they were saying that they're evacuating them and all of this. But when they understood that it doesn't work, yeah, that Putin and Maria lvova belova received uh, like uh, the ICC uh, notice uh, and Ukrainian side started talking about it more and more and it started appearing more and more in the media, they understood that there is something wrong with it. So unfortunately now they're deleting a lot of information. Uh, so if before um, a lot of things could be found through open source, now they're deleting it. Uh, So, for example, uh, children that have been uh, forcibly illegally adopted or given to foster families, they try to hide this information because they change their identities, change their names. Uh, But, yeah, there are many things such as uh, you can see at many Russian websites and as well on the website and YouTube channel of uh, the Youth Army, like uh, yeah they're not they're not trying to hide this this is a part of ideology somehow that they want to show not i believe not just to to russians but also abroad somehow look we are so for traditional values patriotism or family or whatever and i think they're using this this is their tool somehow and yeah
0: you mentioned the youth army lots of these children are forced to join and it's playing a huge part in their indoctrinization and militarization. For people in the West, particularly, don't really have a sense of this. I mean, I've, se- I've seen this pop up quite a few times in reports about Russia and books. It's quite difficult for us to know really like what it is and how it works. What would you say to us to help us understand what this organization does?
1: I believe if people have an idea of Soviet Union, and how, we, how the citizens and the children were treated, which, like, what I mean is you need to be a part of some organization. You need to have your red scarf. Uh, you need to follow some specific rules that is given uh, by your teachers or by someone else. And you need to dress the same. Uh, you need to do like the same that everyone else does. You need to be active Uh, There is no fooling around, there is no playing, like you're a part of society and you need to be useful to society, all of this. So it's a little bit Orwell kind of thing. Yeah, like this absolutely wrong idea of what freedom is and what daily life should look like. So Youth Army, when you look at their videos, you see it for me, it looks like I'm watching Soviet Union somehow, uh, Soviet Union Reborn. They use the same colors so of these like red communism color and they have the same idea of I don't know, listening to the Russian and them millions of times per day to have these slogans also be useful for your country. And so, yeah, it, it's it's very dystopian somehow. And uh, I guess these yeah these images of of communism era this is something that you you, you should like you can compare you you to. You
0: spoke about the sort of change, the deliberate and invidious deliberate changing of people's identities one thing linked to this is what you describe as the forcible passportization of people taken to Russia. What what do you mean by that and how does it work? So
1: forcible passportization is focused on adults as well because with children it really depends. Sometimes they give them to foster families and then just give them different documents. But with, with adults, the one that live on the occupied territories or the one that been taken to Russia, uh, they're forced to take Russian citizenship and otherwise they cannot do anything which means they cannot even go back because in many cases, because many people have been deported in the first months of the full-scale invasion and some of them were taken, for example, to the far east of Russia and these people don't have money, don't have any means to leave and to go back even if they decide to or find a possibility to. So without Russian passports, they're not allowed to do anything. They cannot even They cannot use bank cards, they cannot receive any money, they cannot do anything. But of course, this is very, they also use passportization as a tool to manipulate because what they're saying to Ukrainians in the occupied territories, for example, that, well, if you take Russian passport, if you took Russian passport and now you want to go back to Ukraine, well, they will put you to prison. They will call you collaborator. So you should not, yeah, you should go to Russia, you're Russian now so it's very you know it's it's taking into account the amount of propaganda and also lack of information on the occupied territories and inside russia uh, it's it's this double sided question. So yeah, now they're changing some rules, and they're enforcing passportizations even more than before. And many people are doing what they can to get out. So they refuse to get these passports because they can be, for example, then called to fight against Ukraine. So if you're a man, you can be mobilized to Russian army. And of course, this is, this is absolutely terrible. There was just recently a story about this boy who was deported when he was 17 and he like he came into age and they wanted to mobilize him to Russian army and he managed to appeal publicly to Ukraine so now he is returned but this is just one case there are probably thousands or even tens of thousands of cases like this
0: before we talk about some of the a bit more about the resistance to this and how that works and some of the work you've been doing. Could we just take a sort of historical step back? Because of course, this isn't the first time in history, in Ukrainian history, modern Ukrainian history, that this has happened. Could you just put this story in a bit broader, deeper historical context for us?
1: So basically what we're, I think our project where people was also built around the idea that the forcible deportations of Ukrainians is not a random cruelty of war. This is a planned policy of Russia, and it, it's a it's a war crime on a historical scale. And Russia, on dif- different stages of history, both the Russian Empire and Soviet Russia, why I say Soviet Russia? Because all of the orders to deport different national minorities and uh, people from different regions of uh, then Soviet Union were coming from Kremlin. It, they were not coming from local authorities. So... On different stages of history, Russian authorities were deporting not just Ukrainians. In 1944, they deported mass Crimean Tatars. And I believe that you see the results of it now, because uh, by deporting almost every representative of the indigenous population of the peninsula, they replaced them with Russians. And throughout decades, of course, Russian influence in Crimea was stronger than before. And they did not allow Crimean Tatars to return. They started returning only in the end of Soviet Union and when Ukraine gained independence. And after, like, what, less than 25 years, Crimea was invaded by Russia again. And um, also... Russians deported uh, Ukrainians from uh, from the west of Ukraine because of their anti-communist uh, ideas. They deported Polish people. They deported people from the Baltic states, from Estonia, from uh, Lithuania and Latvia. And this is a very important part of the historical memory for the Baltic states. They really treasure this memory and they remind themselves of what they went through. And as well, they deported Chechen people. They used deportation as policy to remodel societies and to build a much bigger influence on it and to be able to occupy it and to control it. Because we know, yeah, someone who studying history a little bit, uh, knows that since, you 14th, know, 15th century, we, uh, Machiavelli already knew that you cannot occupy territory for too long because people will resist. You either need to kill everyone or you need to find some other means on, of control. And I believe that mass deportations is one of the main tactics that Russia is using to take over territories because territories are people. And this what needs to be understood when Ukraine, for example, says about we need to re- deoccupy all of our territories. We mean people and we mean to also find people who've been taken from their territories because it will, we cannot say that the war will stop till we bring people home. And unfortunately, historically, we know that most of the deported people never return. And even if we look at Second World War, most of the people that have been deported, they never returned. Children that have been deported from Poland to become, become Aryan, future generation of Aryans, they were never found. And this is, needs to be understood that this is a very dangerous precedent that we see now in modern history. And I think it needs to be take into account the historical scale of it and that Russia is basically using the same tactics, the same ideas and we can learn from it and we can find solutions how to prevent this and how not to make it happen again. Just wanted to give one example of what's going on in Mariupol now. We don't know the exact numbers, but there are some some estimates that at least 50,000 people from Mariupol were deported. And some estimates say that around 100,000 were killed. And now Russians are bringing, Russian government are bringing Russians there. Russians are buying apartments in Mariupol. Buying?
2: <laughs> Sometimes they just get inside and leave. Yeah, they
1: get inside and leave. But also there is a whole market of buy apartment near the beach, near near the sea. And the
2: advertising uh, all that.
1: Yeah.
0: Would you be able to talk more about that? What do these advertisements look like? What, how, where, where do people find them? Who's moving?
2: I don't know, like there were a lot of cases from social media when someone advertises and say that someone served in the Russian army and they see how great the nature is, how e- even the ruined city looks better, the Ukrainian ruined city looks better than the Russian unruined one. And they are planning to come back with their families like from Burat, a lot of Buryat, Burat are based there right now. And uh, I saw the recent news that people put their phone numbers on the doors of the apartments saying the owner is still alive so this is a sign for someone not to enter and not to loot someone's property so they treat it as it's something that already belongs to them but it never was and is not right now. So the, the, the behavior is just barbaric. It's not the laws of civilized society when there are some uh, rules under which you perform, under which you interact with each other. So this is like brutal medieval invasion when they just um, destroyed the city murdered its inhabitants and just got into the apartments that are left.
0: Julie, would you talk to us a bit about the sorts of resistance that you see that you're helping organize, that the work that you're doing, the Anastasia sort of laid out what's happening. So maybe we turn the conversation now to what people are trying to do about it and for everything from ra- raising awareness to campaigns, what would you say?
2: Yeah, like I I can give an example of the PR army coming into existence. And this is what happened. And probably it's one of the most meaningful things I've ever created and was a part of. When we all were awakened by the sounds of explosions and alarm uh, on that horrible mor- m- morning of the twenty. 20- was of February and uh, yeah like everybody was asking themselves what to do and uh, how to behave what's the right decision to take we all have families, parents, kids, someone to take care of. And that was actually the time of those decisions, whether to stay or to leave, what to do and how we can contribute to the victory of our country, which was brutally invaded. And uh, the Ukrainian comms and PR community got united. And I would say that our our fuel was enthusiasm and strong wish to fight that injustice. And this is how we united our efforts and uh, created the Ukrainian PR army. And that was 100 percent initiative out of the community uh, so it was not affiliated with uh, any organizations governments whatever and it was purely driven by the desire to to contribute to the victory on the information front which is as important as the actual battlefield where the Ukrainian PR army was showing just impressive results and that Um, exemplary like motivation to fight. For the freedom of Ukraine and of our uh, people and land. This is how we started. And ever since we haven't uh, put uh, on hold our activity, we've been ev- evolutionized a lot. So now at least PR Army has some structure, streams, processes, b- because it, at, at the very beginning it was chaos. I don't know how we managed yeah, was, uh,
1: to survive. It was around <laughs> 700 people in, in, in Slack chat and We were just gathering like all of the contacts and all of these people were like communication specialists or marketing specialists. Everyone was bringing their contacts, for example, Julia, who had been like, I guess, intense, intensive uh, experience in the PR, and she had a lot of contacts. So we started by uh, working with international journalists to provide stories, to provide experts, to provide eyewitnesses from the spot. But then it grew. And for example, Where Are People is one of the projects by the PR army, as well as we have some others, such as Disarm Russia, which is focused more on sanctions and also voices of freedom, which is basically what we do to when we provide with Ukrainian experts and when we build lists of Ukrainian experts who can comment in different languages and different topics.
0: yeah can I ask two things really one what does it feel like to be fighting that that war as you said the sort of the war in the information space and it seems to me that part of this is sort of a war of narratives that on one hand there's the Russian narrative of what's happening and what it means. And the presuppositions that we should have when we're approaching what's happening, and on the other hand, what you're saying is no, that's none of that's real. You have to listen to us. It's actually it's our narrative which is the right one. Like how do, what, when when we conceptualize this as a battle of narratives, like how do you win that? What what do you do?
2: I wouldn't say that it's easy, and uh, unfortunately, we haven't won that war as well so far. But, but because Russia is very skillful and uh, they had. Uh, I would say that they are more experienced in disseminating propaganda because they've done that for centuries, like Nastya put it in that historic perspective. They use that newspeak when they um, come with new terms to define a lot of uh, definitions in the way uh, how to put it in a different light for their like information consumers. In our case, I would say that uh, we decided not to address and combat every case of Russian propaganda, we decided that what's the best way to fight with a lie if not to give access to truth. And with that platform, Voices of Freedom, we provide access to hundreds of Ukrainian experts and Ukrainian Uh, think tanks, Ukrainian uh, eyewitnesses uh, on a number of topics because we we noticed that uh, a lot of uh, uh, discussions uh, were happening, let's say, in Europe without even engaging anybody from Ukraine. How come? Yeah. So we made sure that uh, through that platform, international media could get access to verified speakers from Ukraine. And uh, at the same time, they also can uh, submit an international speaker. So we would do that background check if that person was not... uh previously caught in disseminating Russian propaganda or if the person was somehow affiliated with uh, Russian governments or Russian uh, businesses, organizations. So uh, unfortunately, the PR army doesn't have capacity to address every case of fake news or propaganda. But we make sure that Ukrainian voices are vocal throughout international media and that we provide that very access to Ukrainian experts.
3: Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just one pound at www.telegraph.co.uk slash Ukraine The Latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our foreign affairs newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine Live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. We're doing the same for what is unfolding in the Middle East. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow the Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. As the disinformation war ramps up, we're relying on your support more than ever. You can get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. You can also contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we're especially interested to hear where you're listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was today produced by Giles Gear. The executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells.